Ah, Christmas, that long-established Christian tradition full of reverence and sacrifice, meant to celebrate the birth of Jesus with solemn and pious tidings of joy, or at least that's what the holiday song suggests. Some songs are secular, some celebrate winter, others offer glory to God and the season, but there's that one, that weird one. We wish you a Merry Christmas. It sounds delightful and harmless, but in a few verses, singers demand food and booze and declare that they won't go home until they get some. What happened to the merriment and tidings? Why are Christmas carolers threatening to occupy your doorstep? For answers to this and other holiday conundrums, Long Story Short interrupts Dr. Summers as he makes out his list of naughty and nice politicians. I'm Mark Summers. I teach American history and anything else I can get away with up at University of Kentucky on the on the 17th floor of the office star, for which I will never forgive the builders. Long story short, wants to know why it is that, according to the Christmas Carol, We Wish You a Merry Christmas, that Christmas carolers are threatening to occupy your doorstep until they can get some figgy pudding. So what is that? Ah, uh, well, most people would describe that as assault and battery, actually. Uh, it's just, what, what it is more than anything else is part of the tradition of sort of the rowdiness of Christmas, which, in fact, Christmas was. I mean, Christmas wasn't always kind of a family holiday. It was a period off from work. It was the longest period off from work most folks would have because between Christmas and New Year's, you have about seven days to get seriously plastered and then seriously sober up again. What time period are we talking about? Uh, oh, 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, 1840, 1850. Uh, generally, uh, in this country and other countries, everything goes down. You're down tools. Uh, and it's wonderful because it means that you've got a long swath of time off. Uh, if you were a sharecropper, of course, your new, your new contract would begin at the beginning of the new year. So really, this is the time when your old contract is over and you can either start negotiating or you can hold out depending on how much clout and muscle you got. But so it's, it's a real time of, of sort of holiday letting loose. And a lot of the time it is kind of rowdy. They may well occupy your house. Uh, you know, it has a lot of the trick or treat atmosphere to it, i.e. if you aren't offered a treat, usually something of at least 70 or 80 proof, uh, you know, it, you know, th things are going to happen to you. If you if you live, say, in Philadelphia, say, in, oh, 1820, 1830, when Christmas comes, what happens is a lot of the working class guys are going to be off work. They're going to dress in fantastic costumes. It's going to be pretty much like Halloween. Uh, they may dress up as women if they're not, or black if they're not, or Chinese, or just in, in enormously weird fashions. And then they go downtown, and they hit every bar. And in every bar, you get a free drink. Uh, and uh, that you can keep in mind, there's a lot, a lot of bars in downtown Philadelphia. So after you've been given a free drink in, oh, I'd say about 15 places, your memory's gonna kinda slip as to whether you've been given a drink there or not. 
And uh, the effect is that you're going to be really feeling really good. If you feel really good, what you're going to do is maybe start smashing the place up and maybe smash the store windows as you wander down. If you feel really, really bad, which is also possible after 15 drinks, you're going to start smashing the place up. It's going to be right. And it's going to be right, let loose. And this happens all the time. And any bartender that isn't providing you with the drinks you want uh, stands a good chance as this journey goes on of basically seeing us put place put to Flinders. And it, that's absolute standard. Uh, it's, a, it's a constant kind of thing. And you can find that in every town because essentially Christmas is holiday. And it's holiday without very much of a religious connection at all. Well, now, so now I'm, con I'm confused because what yeah. you're describing sounds a lot more like Mardi Gras yeah. than like Christmas. So I yeah. thought Christmas was this time of back to the hearth Nope. Family reverence, where nope. we're all going to gather nope. around, nope. and we're going to think about the birth of Jesus and the three wise men and the star. Nope. Some Christmas, in other oh. words, Christmas no. then no, is no, New no, Year's no, Eve no, no. today, Elmo. <laughs> You're so, absolutely right, what? and and there's a connection there. Christmas isn't Norman Rockwell country, not then. That doesn't happen until about the 1840s or 50s. So Christmas was more of a midwinter. We're really bored and looking to cut loose kind of celebration. And the days are getting longer again that we've reached the bottom Wait, end of darkness are you and saying, the fires are coming back are you suggesting that there's some sort of pagan uh -huh. solstice connection with all of this religiosity what do you think the yule log is the yule log isn't just people getting warm by themselves the yule log comes out of people out there that used to worship trees it comes out of people in saxon periods out there who worship the return of sunlight and the whole idea is you have these enormous bonfires right there at the solstice which is mighty close to christmas and people take home some of those logs and keep them burning as a token of, of sunlight returning it's a it's, it's a it's a crucial kind of moment if you're in into superstition and the rest and all of that is there from the very beginning that's that's why you have christmas right there as the days begin to lengthen again. I mean, Christ's birthday is in the spring. I mean, what are you doing shifting his birthday to that period? You're doing it because you're taking over pagan holidays because you can't uproot them. So, yeah, yeah, it's a pagan holiday. So That's how it starts out. How does it get made illegal? Other than towns being raised to the ground with drunken, you know, parties. Well, why, why would Puritans uh, outlaw Christmas? Well, a lot of good reasons, really. And it's outlawed in England in 1647. It's outlawed in Massachusetts in 1657. You realize all the way up to 1870, Boston school kids are still going to school on Christmas Day. I mean, this stuff has a really long, lingering past out here. Did you say 1870? 1870, yeah. It, it's that long. Because, in fact, Christmas is largely seen as something that, you know, Christmas isn't supposed to be a holiday. It's supposed to be a holy day. That's a different kind of thing. But you can't keep people from going out and getting completely snockered. I mean, you know, this is this is not a good kind of. Uh, it, it it it's horrible. And the fact is, this is in many ways going back to all kinds of very unChristian customs. It's a holiday that's that's really connected in with saints' days, and, and the Puritans don't believe in saints. And so what you want to do is just, just close all this stuff down. Close it down so that people go to church on Sunday, but that's it. Uh, if they're going to do anything at all. Because otherwise, it, it's just rowdy time. 
And there's so many of these kind of pagan superstitions that have crept into Christmas. I mean, anybody, probably anybody in your audience can tell you that uh, if you live on a farm, Christmas night is the night that the animals can actually talk. I'm not saying their conversation is going to be sparkling, but but the fact of the matter, it's there. But it's bad luck to listen to them. And this this goes back from way, way, way back when. And I actually began to look up stuff that you think is harmless. But you know what? It really isn't really very harmless. Do you realize in 1551, I mean, even before there were Puritans around, uh, a law got put on the English books that essentially said everybody has to attend church on Sunday, but you're not allowed to drive there or ride there. You have to walk there. Everybody does. These were on the books until the 1800s. You have to, is that so that you... What, uh, why? Well, maybe because the parking would be really terrible. Uh, <laughs> it's a natural thing to get all there. So you uh, couldn't make a quick getaway? Maybe because if it's a day when your horses can talk, you really don't want to imagine what kind of things they're going to say when they're taken out in the cold and the snow on a day like that. I think it's largely in part because, in fact, you want a day where everybody, no matter how rich, no matter how poor you are, you're basically equal. You're e Because you are equal in the sight of the Lord, your souls are That's right. It, so it sounds like a pilgrimage. It sounds yeah. like the Camino de Santiago, for example, that you, you know, you're almost groveling and crawling to church. And, not bad, not yeah. bad. Nonetheless, but, it's a, it's a no. certain pilgrimage that we're all on. And it's <laughs> the law. But I, I just began to look up a few of the things that are kind of weird, and we say, well, let's talk about plum pudding. I mean, plum pudding, you know, that that's a wonderful kind of Christmas tradition, right? Um, except that there's a few things about it that maybe are a little stranger and, and more unsettling, and if you're a Puritan, really unsettling because of you know, your fear of sort of Catholic superstition taking over. Plum pudding originally had to have 13 ingredients in them. 13? 12 for the apostles, one for Jesus. Of course. Okay. That's what it is for. So you have 13 ingredients. I mm -hmm. hesitate to say, wonder what ingredient stands for Judas. That's a rather thought. <laughs> perhaps. That sounds good, but it's arsenic. a striking thing. They don't have plums, of course, because nobody had plums. Arsenic! Good, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, they don't have that. They, they, they have raisins not plums of course but it's that kind of weird idea of the 12 ingredients that's unsettling and, and it gets even more unsettling which is when you stir it if you want to have good luck the way you stir it when you're cooking it up is you have to have every member of the family take turns at the stirring not because of the work alone but you also have to stir it from east to west why do you do this well you see the magi the wise men they came from east to west for, for christ and so you look at the plum pudding, and the plum pudding is something just chock full of these kind of superstitions out there. And a lot of these superstitions really interconnected with kind of what you might describe as uh, sort of everyday uh, common garden variety Catholic superstition, the kind that the Puritans are getting away from. I mean, remember, this is a time when basically your, your altar table, Catholics say, you know, it has to face east, it's the Anglican church, and, you know, common ordinary people aren't allowed to touch it because it's kind of sacred and, and so on. And all of this kind of superstitious realm is being bound up into Christmas tradition. Well, if you're a Puritan, get rid of it. Get rid of it. It's not in the Bible. You don't want people doing this. And the idea that you can say say that in this Christmas pie, oh, there's going to be a coin buried, a threepence, a sixpence, I don't know. Uh, and people who take out this coin, whoever finds the coin in the pie, they're going to get rich over the next year. But you can't cut this pie until Christmas morning. Because if you cut it before that, it's bad luck. Well, all this kind of superstition makes you think to yourself, 
there's a lot of people that ought to be certified really quick, but it also suggests a world of superstition that the Puritans really want to get rid of. So you're trying to get rid of all of this kind of enormous weird culture with Yule logs and plum puddings and, and all this kind of stuff because all of it's strange, weird kind of stuff of a well, sort. It sounds to me like strange, weird, superstitious stuff would be inviting dark forces to come into the house. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Dark forces. Either the devil, or maybe medieval demons, or maybe somebody Catholic. I was going to say, or just a good Catholic yeah. walks in the house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's sort of a terror. Damn, it's a terrifying thing. Quakers will tell you that the plum pudding is the invention, as they said, of the Scarlet Door of Babylon. And those of you who know the revelations know about the Scarlet Door of Babylon right there. Um, was, she, was she a good cook? <laughs> was she a good cook? <laughs> That's clever. So we've talked about, you know, Christmas potentially is inviting the horror of Babylon and, the, and dark forces into the house. Uh-huh. How did we get from that and Christmas being this dark time? How do we get to this, yeah. what they've called back to the hearth movement, where it becomes this sort of yeah. family ritual? How did we get to this delightful time? Of even more ritual. Of yes. even more ritual. Right. Very different <laughs> rituals and very family-oriented rituals. How did we get back to this gift-giving and happy time? Charles Dickens. Thomas Nast is another part. Tell us who Thomas Nast was. Thomas Nast. Thomas Nast, like all the greatest American political cartoonists, is actually born some cells. He's a German. He was a German. His dad fled Germany, I think, to avoid the draft uh, in the 1840s. Nast came over here, and he became probably the greatest political cartoonist we've ever had. Uh, he invented the Republican elephant. He popularized the Democratic donkey, the Tammany Tiger. But what Nast really did and did wonderfully was actually do pictures of Santa Claus. Our picture, our imagination of what Santa Claus looks like today all comes from Thomas Nast and all from his cartoons because that's where it came from originally. And they're gorgeous. He's a bright, jolly, kind of happy-looking person uh, and so on, as opposed to the original St. Nicholas, who's kind of more dour. You realize, of course, that St. Nicholas and, and, and Christmas actually are about three or four weeks away. St. Nicholas's Day is, I think, on December 6th, which is why if you want presents in some place like Belgium, you put them in used to put them in your wooden shoes on December 6th, the day of the gifts. And, of course, St. Nicholas is also part of that tradition of Christmas. He knows when you're, you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. And, you know, so be good for goodness sake. I mean, Santa Claus is coming to town, and boy, is he sore. I mean, you know, it's a danger. <laughs> it, it really is out there. The kids get punished who have been bad. So this, but, this leads me to ask you about some of the darker figures of Christmas. Uh, Krampus is this creature who, if children misbehave, he kidnaps them and takes them out into the woods, and I think he eats them. Ooh, that's nice. That's lovely. It comes out of this darker vision of these these terrifying and supernatural forces. It, it gets domesticated by the Dutch into Black Peter, who, who accompanies Santa Claus. It's the good St. Nicholas, and then it's Black Peter. Good, sort of good cop, bad cop type stuff. And Black Peter is there to do things to bad kids. Uh, yeah, or the bell snicker in this country. It's a kind of tradition. In, the bell snicker? The bell, bell snicker, snicker yes. yeah. This was popularized by The Office not too long ago. They had a Christmas episode, and Bell Snickle came on to the episode, and he smacks oh. you with these rods. That's and right. yes, if you've been bad, and you. That's right. Uh, and, and it, has, it resembles St. Nick, but he still has the, you know, you've been bad or good tradition. So he's a yeah. little bit like a Catholic nun. 
And he comes from the woods. Like he comes from the woods, yet. right? So it comes from the woods, church. yeah. And you would have somebody playing a part of the Bell's Snicker in immigrant neighborhoods, say, United States in the 1800s, and they come door to door, and they'd ask the parents, has has Johnny been good, and so on, and if the parents said no, uh, the kid was going to get a good thrashing out of it. That's what the Bell Snicker is there for. Nice role to have. Nice I work. like that. Right. Because, and also, <laughs> yeah. for the parents, it's very convenient because, yeah. again, it's good cop, bad cop. The parents can continue to be the good cop and say, well, right. I, you know, he came to the door. What was I going to do? Yeah, but it's frightening kind of stuff. There All of these kind of rituals that we see here, you know, interconnect. In some ways, some of these rituals are ways of sort of uh, keeping a discipline in the family and creating discipline. So you begin to see how these demon figures gradually get domesticated. Well, what happens by the 1830s is, for so many reasons, American, British people, they're increasingly worried about disorder. But you can channel all of those spirits and emotions into good qualities. Christmas is the time for family to get together. Christmas is the time for the exchange of presents. Uh, Christmas is for generosity. So all these energies can be channeled in ways that actually hold society together rather than not. So I have to ask you at this point, you said 1830 to 1840. Yeah. This is when we start having sectional crisis in the um, United States. Is there any connection there between this idea of Christmas and nation building? It's really keeping society together. Remember, this is also a time period where in New York City, uh, the consumption of alcohol is the equivalent as if every man, woman, and child were drinking 10 cans of beer a day. I mean, we're talking really, really high consumption levels, and alcohol and other things create enormous disorder. And you can see the same pattern going on in England. Oh, because they, they don't have a sexual crisis. They don't have um, a reliable water source. So they're drinking a tremendous amount of alcohol, and then it becomes an even more tremendous amount of alcohol. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's going into the fruitcake. And it's going into the fruitcake. <laughs> My father-in-law tells a story of him and being a child, and they would make the they would make a traditional German fruitcake, and they uh-huh. do it in the sink, and everyone would come past or a little bourbon. And he says it just got better. I can <laughs> imagine. <laughs> a- a- absolutely, it's perfectly legitimate. Yes, I mean you know, they, but you know, but with all that social disorder, you want to find ways of controlling it, and this is one way of controlling it. Uh, I mean, you basically domesticate Christmas, you domesticate Thanksgiving as family holidays. And that's one of the things that, uh, say, Charles Dickens's Christmas Carol really does in its description of what Christmas is and what Christmas should be. The one part of the tradition that doesn't translate over here is right at the heart of a Christmas Carol, but it's still very, very true in England, and it's striking. And it may also be kind of a way of channeling in all of those darker spirits that used to be in Christmas, those superstitions. You know what it is? No, tell it. Do you? No. Ghost stories. One of the things you do, one of the British traditions for Christmas is telling ghost stories. And after all, that's what Christmas Carol is, isn't it? The whole book. It is. It's a, yeah. It is a Christmas ghost story. But it's very, very common in England to have the Christmas ghost story. It's, it's almost an expected part of tradition. Shedding an incredible light on my childhood because uh-huh. my family is from Virginia. And when my aunts would come to visit at Christmas, they would tell us ghost stories, and I never knew why. I just thought they liked to tell ghost stories. Uh-huh. But that makes sense, that it was an old family tradition to tell ghost stories at Christmas. That's right. Wow. Exactly so. And so I, I'm delighted to know that tradition has actually lived on and is, is, is somewhere in this country, because it's much stronger in England, but it's there. Uh, and it's in one way, I think, channeling all of these, these, these superstitions out there.
Even in the song, it's the most wonderful time of the year. I'm sitting here thinking, where's that lyric from? Where's that lyric from? There will be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases not long ago. But I mean, yeah. it's, it's referencing ghost stories, and you don't That's particularly think of ghost stories, really, when it comes to Christmas, but you're right. You're except right. for except for, for uh, people like Clarence, I suppose, in It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, but uh, yeah, something like that, which, which I keep wondering whether there's a connection there to that. Ghost story tradition somehow. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. It's the most wonderful time. So, right. <laughs> but, yeah, okay. So, so it's it's all out there. So there there is all this kind kind of deliberate channeling this way to make it like family and 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 connect it into family and to gift giving and to. A consumer world and so forth. And as for the rowdies and the rest, if you want to find out what happens to the rowdies, you can look at what happens, which is, you know, Cody, your point originally, that it sounds a lot like New Year's. Well, that's exactly what they do. They try to shove, you know, city fathers try to shove all the stuff a week away to the end of sort of that one-week holiday period and enormous blowout of New Year's. And have you, either of you ever been to Philadelphia? No. No. Okay. Well, you haven't yes, missed please. anything. Uh, <laughs> sorry, except mom. You'd like mom very much. I mean, I, I bring that up because in Philadelphia, on every on New Year's Day, it's televised. It's big. It goes on all day. They have something called the Mummers Day Parade. Essentially, what it is is all kinds of neighborhood societies, different kinds, get together to make absolutely fantastic, unbelievable costumes and parade through the city and whichever group of mummers uh, has the most, is judged to have the best and most remarkable costume, uh, they get a prize and they get a, sort of a, a recognition. So it's a very stiff kind of competition out there. Everybody gets an enormous audience for this, this ornate spectacle, kind of like Mardi Gras. But it's really taking all that energy of the sort of Calathumpians and Pantasticalians and so on, the, the, the kind of, you know, Christmas people dressed up in disguise, and channeling it into a positive and constructive form, largely channeled and controlled by the city. So that, that's really how Christmas domesticates itself. And it's wonderful. It's a wonderful change for people. There's almost an inherent fear that's built into Christmas. Fear that it's going to be something that I don't want it to be. Fear that you're celebrating something that I don't believe in. Fear mm -hmm. that you're going to get, you know, wildly drunk and tear the city mm -hmm. down just to come with fear with the ghost story. And a desire to freeze it into one pattern. That you can only have one pattern of Christmas. Christmas also was the day in which, um, in pre-emancipation, slaves had the day off. And it was oh, a yeah. day of celebration and, and jubilee for um, sl uh, slaves in the American South as well. Sure. So can you talk a little bit about that and what... Uh, well, Christmas was usually celebrated by getting off of work. It was celebrated by, uh, by whatever feasting you could manage to do, skimpy as that was, by being with your family... I assume with the singing of songs, but I don't think they were the same songs as you're going to find in, say, ye olde English songbook, uh, and the rest. And and the next week, usually things would be probably pretty mellow and laid off. The cotton has been harvested; it's already been packed off. Uh, the tobacco and the rest. There's not that much to do. It can be said. But the frightening thing is, on the plantation, this doesn't bother the the master very much because he's got his eye on what goes on. There's not going to be any problem. 
But the very moment you have the first Christmas with people that aren't any longer slaves, there's just a wild, tremendous wave of fear that just runs across the entire South. What are they doing out there? What are they plotting? They haven't signed their contracts for next year. Maybe they've heard that the lands are all going to be divided up on Christmas Day. Maybe they intend to take the lands and divide them up. Maybe they're going to kill us all. So what you've got is you've got, you've got basically Christmas is, you can call it, celebrated by the white communities raiding in the black homes, taking away their firearms, trying to find reasons to arrest them, forbidding them al any alcoholic libation, and uh, punishing those people they might think might be part of an uprising. There's not going to be an uprising. There's no Christmas uprising. But a lot of people die. And a lot of people die because the masters, once the former slaves are out there on the plantation celebrating Christmas on their own, they think that, well, you know, they might be passing the Christmas cup around. They also might be passing the Christmas pike around that might we might get impaled on. It's it's a very scary moment, that Christmas after the war. Talk to us about now the great purveyor of Christmas. How did Macy's get involved? How did Macy's get the corner market on Christmas? One of the things that makes Macy's get stuck into it is more than anything else so that he really can't let go of it is the movie Miracle on 34th Street, the movie from 1947 with uh, Edmund Gwen playing Kris Kringle. It's a wonderful movie. But from that moment on, basically Macy's and the Christmas Parade became so indissoluble that Macy's will never really be able to get, get rid of it out there. But in large part, Christmas had essentially become an enormously competitive thing between, between various stores and the rest. And, and of course, and this you really throw in Norman for... Rockwell, too. And oh, once that? you put Santa Claus next to Coca-Cola, uh -huh. uh, that certainly commercializes Christmas. Oh, it very clearly does. And it's, those are some of the best Santas around. I mean, they're just gorgeous. But, you know, this really seems to go back to the turn of the century when, you know, Christmas shopping became really a nice way to really encourage a, a big boost at the end of the year. Because the striking thing, and we don't do it anymore, but the striking thing is you look at the first political cartoonists in newspapers, and about a week or two before Christmas, almost every one of their cartoons has to do with Christmas shopping. And it's constantly there, not simply as, as an analogy out there, but to suggest this is the meaning of Christmas. Go out and shop now. Make sure you do your shopping early. Don't delay till the last minute. And you begin to have the feeling the real reason for this is that the newspapers at the turn of the century are desperately dependent on the advertising of the department stores. And therefore, this is their way of paying it back. You do this, and they're going to advertise in your paper. There's a real interconnection there, and between them and the making of early political cartoons. So, so... That's a roundabout way of saying, I have the faintest idea how to answer your question. But that was <laughs> most excellent, Dr. Summers. Nice okay. cover. So, uh, and in closing, once again, we love to hear you sing. Deck us all with Boston Charlie, Walla Walla Wash and Kalamazoo. Nor is freezing on the trolley, swallowed all the cauliflower allegory. Don't we know archaic barrel lullaby, little boy Louisville Lou. Trolley Molly, don't love Harold, Bula Bula Pensacola Hullabaloo. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're well-known lyrics. I mean, everybody should know this stuff. Oh, thank you, Dr. Summers. Yeah, you know, don't take life so serious, son. Take know how permanent.